Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 63. I sincerely hope everybody's having a great week out there. Welcome to the month of April. Uh, It is starting to be spring, liking that quite a bit. It's almost spring and summer festival season. Uh, So uh, everybody's going to be really busy with the gigs coming up here. Uh, So we're really excited about that. And uh, I'm going to try to get out to some of these festivals and do some on location interviews for you. Uh, So be looking forward to that. We've got a fantastic episode for you today. I am going to be joined by the great Peter Kogan to talk about his new album called The Green Album right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by the great Peter Kogan in just a moment. Uh, Peter makes his home these days up in Minnesota and has just a ton of great classical and orchestral experience. Um, He has played in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Honolulu, and now in the Minnesota Symphony Orchestras. Um, Has just a resume that is incredible. When he was a younger man, uh, shared uh, played with Bo Diddley, Lightning Hopkins, The Drifters, just tons and tons of great experience and has just a fantastic new record out called The Green Album with his band that he put together that he calls The Monsterful Wonder Band, which uh, I think is a fantastic name for a jazz ensemble. So uh, without further ado, please help me welcome Peter Kogan to the Drum Shuffle. Good evening, Peter. How's it going? 
Pretty good, pretty good. A lot of snow on the ground, a lot of snow in the air, but uh, we're used to that out here. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, um, hopefully you're in a warm spot for our chat, and thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Drum Shuffle. We really do appreciate your time. My pleasure. Awesome. Um, Peter, as is the tradition on this show, we would like to kind of go back to the very beginning, if you will, and you can spend as, as much or as little time on it as you'd like, but tell our listeners where you're from and how you ended up as a drummer to begin with. Okay. Um, I was born in Yonkers, New York, where I spent my first few years. Um, grew up mostly in New Rochelle, New York, and by the time I was five, I knew I loved music, and I would fool around on it. We had a piano in the house, and I would just sort of fool around on it, uh, compose a little bit on it without knowing what I was doing. And um, when I was six, I started violin lessons, um, which was uh, not atypical in my household. My brother was already playing piano and some cello. Um, my older sister took up the flute. And um, I played violin for a few years in the... Uh, in the uh, elementary school orchestra. In those days, we had an elementary school orchestra. This was in New Rochelle, New York, where we had moved. And uh, it had an elementary school band as well. And um, I was noticing some kids on the playground with drumsticks in their hands, and I got really intrigued. Now, my parents had lots of records around the house, including some old jazz records. There was a Fats Waller recording, and... Um, and I just was really attracted to those drumsticks, and I wanted to do that. That looked like lots of fun to me. Um, at that point, I was already playing a little bit of piano, too. Uh, so um, in those days, you could get drum lessons from the band director of the school, okay. public school. And uh, he had a drum class, so I started doing that. And uh, pretty soon I was playing you know, snare drum in the, in the band, in the elementary school band. So the the drums kind of stuck with you, uh, yeah. more so than the other instruments. I think so. Yeah. I mean, by the time I was eleven, I decided I would quit the violin. I kept up the piano. Uh, I was very fortunate to be getting uh, started getting theory lessons on the piano, keyboard harmony lessons, and um, uh, around that time. Um, my brother and sister both went to this music camp uh, and up in upstate New York. And, uh, I, of course I wanted to be with them. I wanted to go with them too. And as it happened, the, um, drum teacher in that camp, believe it or not, was Saul Goodman, the famous timpanist of the New York Philharmonic. Oh, wow. And so I got a few lessons with him that summer and he told my parents he would take me on in the fall. So, uh, he not only started me on the snare drum, but he also started me on drum set and, and showed me the, the basic ride cymbal beat and, you know, four on the floor and two and four on the hi-hat. And, uh, that was, I was into all of this stuff. So came the f next fall, I started taking lessons with him like every two weeks or so. So he became my main drum teacher. That's fantastic. I mean, yeah. there's there's nothing better than having a, a world-class educator in your life as, as an early adopter of the instrument, no doubt. No question that I was extremely fortunate, extremely lucky to make that contact and have someone like that who was also extremely demanding. <laughs> oh, <I laughs> really, really had to be perfect every week. I could not slack off. He would, he would just 
very dismissive. And so it was either he loved you or he hated you. Sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think all good drum instructors, it's that way. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think if you haven't done your homework between lessons, you know, a, a good educator is going to know that and they're going to beat you up on it. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that was great. And um, at that point, um, I made a very interesting connection and was about 13 years old. Again, following my sister to a, a music camp, uh, went to a music camp up in um, uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And uh, the owner's stepson was the famous uh, jazz bassist Chuck Israels, who uh, ended up playing with Bill Evans and lots of other famous people. At the time, he was working at the jazz barn with Max Roach, which was nearby. And wow. he gave a kind of a jazz class at this music camp. And uh, I had the great fortune to be introduced to uh, Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk and Dizzy Gillespie. I sort of knew a little bit about swing music, but I uh, hadn't really followed modern jazz at that point. So I, I, I became a fanatic at that point on uh, contemporary jazz. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you met the Mount Rushmore of jazz, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get any bigger than Charlie and Thelonious and Max Roach. Exactly, I mean, exactly. And uh, um, so that, since we lived not too far from New York City, by the time I was a middling teenager, I was making trips into the city. You know, like everyone knows about how uh, you could go down to Broadway and, and hear Gene Krupa playing, you know, from the street and uh, at the Metropole. And uh, you could just sort of stand outside and occasionally get a glimpse of him and hear him playing. Um, and then you could get a, a non-drinking seat at Birdland if you were 16. I think we snuck in when we were 15, friend and I. Um, the Jazz Gallery. There are a number of clubs where you could you could uh, get in even if you were underage. And uh, so I got a chance to hear some great people back then. Very inspiring. I started putting together groups of my own in high school. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's just amazing. I mean, I keep using that word, but, you know, you were literally sitting at the feet of the masters of the craft. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, I only wish I had heard more and only wish I maybe I should have, you know, taken lessons with one of these great drummers who I was hearing. But um, I was very also at the same time on a very uh, strict track to classical music. Studying with Saul Goodman, um, I you know was studying first first snare drum, and then he took me to mallets after actually it was mallets and snare drum from the beginning, and then after two years he put me on timpani um, and took me through his book, and uh, which uh, most timp- a lot of timpanists still use. I use I use it when I'm teaching still, and um, it, that was a then it was a question of you know what to do next. Um, I did have. I kept playing drums into my first couple of years at Juilliard. Um, I uh, was connected up with my cousin, who was a blues guitarist, and um, he event- went on to-, to form the Blues Project um, with some other people, which was a sort of a New York blues-based, Chicago-style blues band. But after doing a few gigs with him, I, uh, I decided to concentrate on classical music because it, uh, it sort of requires that. And um, so I kind of put the drum set away for a while. Right. Uh, well, and, you know, I mean, I, 
after reading through your bio, you know, I know you were fairly young, you know, when you finished college, you were fairly young and joined, I want to say it was the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra first. Is that correct? That's correct. I was in Cleveland studying with the great timpanist there, Cloyd Duff. And um, Cleveland has a kind of a closed shop type audition system, unlike many other orchestras. They would invite people to play. So since I was already a student there uh, and had already played extra with the orchestra, they invited me to audition. And um, there were about 12 of us who came, were invited in, and I did manage to get the job. So I was finishing my school, and I was also uh, playing uh, fourth percussion in the Cleveland Orchestra, which was amazing. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, like going into a well-oiled machine, which just can function. You know, you just sort of have to fit in. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> Amazingly disciplined, disciplined group. Yeah, and and your reading skills had best be on point as well. <laughs> oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, well, and, and there's been conversation on the show with other players, you know, and, and I think especially amongst drummers, there's two schools of thought, you know, there's the the school that I come from, which is, you know, kind of the rock and roll, you know, put on your Led Zeppelin record and figure mm-hmm. it out, you know, mm-hmm. school. I, I'm not a very good reader at all. Mm-hmm. And then there are the others that say reading is essential, you, you know, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, it's just not in the cards for me to ever be in an orchestra or a symphony because I just don't have the the reading chops, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I Mm -hmm. envy those of you that do have them um, because it's a skill that that you really do need. Well, it's uh, to jump ahead a little bit. um, Now that I um, I'm doing almost full-time drum set, I mean, still occasionally get a timpani gig here and there, but uh, since I'm doing drum set full-time and and working out of a lot of the drum books, I'm finding that my reading, uh, classical music didn't necessarily spill over that easily to reading drum charts. And so this has been an interesting challenge for me, you know, working out of books and, and looking at charts and, uh, and, and deciphering how to read a drum set, kick, you know, drum set music sure. with the four lines. It, it's uh, because I hadn't done very much of that, uh, only minimally over the years. So there's been another learning curve for me. Absolutely. Well, and, and to kind of keep with the theme of, you know, moving through your career and I, you mm-hmm. know, I don't want to gloss any of this over, but you also uh, played with the Pittsburgh Orchestra. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was my second job. And there, um, I, in, in my first job, it was basically, I was in the percussion section. So, you know, I was playing all the percussion instruments, but no timpani. In my second job, I was associate timpanist to the great player Stan Leonard, who you may have heard of, who's written much percussion music. Yes. Um, and so I, as associate timpanist, I would play you know, usually one piece on a program, and I got to play with the Pittsburgh Chamber Orchestra, which went on tour. So I got my uh, feet wet in, in that professional sense as a timpanist. And that was, that was a great experience. It was a very fine orchestra. Um, took me to about the age of about 30, 31. Um, at that point... I uh, got the itch to play drum set again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that most of my listeners are going to be drum set players, you know, in contemporary music. Um, But I find this part of your amazing story to be so um, intriguing to me. Because, Mm -hmm. as you said, I got the itch to play the drum set. You packed up moved to New York, 
and you've you've got some playing credits here that I'm just dying to hear about. So, okay. well, you know, it started off kind of slow, but I was uh, um, working with my cousin, the blues guitarist, for a while, and then um, that band didn't last very long. I started just jamming with people in my room. Uh, I had saved up enough money to live for a while and sort of get settled in. Uh, found a place on the Upper West Side where I could practice and play and rehearse as well. And um, I started getting rock and roll gigs. I'd take whatever I could. Um, now, uh, by my other cousin, who's named Jonathan Kalb, who's still active in the New York City area, had worked, had worked once with uh, Lightning Hopkins. And um, so when Lightning was offered a gig at the Village Gate, and this was like, a few months after I had gotten to New York, um, he uh, he asked Jonathan to back him up. So I was asked to play drums in this situation, and um, there there I was. All of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden. So we played three nights with Lightning, uh, and we had a really nice gig with him. Um, and we had some celebrities coming backstage to say hello to him. You know, John Belushi came back and and was <laughs> talking to him like he was his old buddy because they they hadn't quite done the Blues Brothers thing yet, but I think they were working on it. Yeah. So that was really cool. And um, and I just I started playing with rock and roll bands, country bands. You know, I, I would jam jazz. I had jazz jam sessions in my my own apartment. Um, and would invite anyone over. Eventually, that led to a, um, a a band. We called it Scratch and Sniff, and it was uh, saxophone, guitar, piano, bass, and drums. And um, I started writing some tunes for the band, and we would have little little gigs at some of the nicer nicer looking clubs nothing paid very much it wasn't a living or anything like that so i was basically doing as many bands as i could um along that period of time you know i was asked to, to back up um the drifters and um that did one of those dick clark rock and roll shows Nice. With the Crystals and Gary U.S. Bonds and Bo Diddley was on the show and I backed him up too. Amazing. Yeah. So I, I did get this great experience, you know, um, playing drums with some of these people and uh, unforgettable. I uh, ended up towards the end of that time, I hooked up with the Larry Elgart big band and played a couple of gigs with them. And uh, also within that period, since I was sort of in the blues area i had a, a, a sort of a working band um uncle boogie and the boogeyman which was playing at a it's a good a, name that's yeah a, that's a good a name called tramps in the west village or east village excuse me around 14th street um that had lots of local bands playing there every night it played pretty regularly there that led to backing up um Honey Boy Edwards and Floyd Jones, two of the real old timers. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. From Chicago. So I, you know, there were things like that that would come up. And uh, I got to hear great people in New York, of course, you know, at the end of their careers. People like uh, Philly Joe was still playing. Um, I went up to the West End Bar and was able to hear Joe Jones, and is already in 80, 80 years old. And, um, Sonny Greer, 
Oh, Ellington's yeah. drummer played up there in that club. You know, you'd go to this club and there were these famous drummers and, you know, a handful of people in the audience. And <laughs> yeah, Oh, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> but it was a great, great experience to see these guys. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Joe Jones, and I'll just say this. Uh, if I can do half of what Joe Jones was doing in his 80s when I'm that age, I will die a happy, happy drummer because that that guy was incredible until the day he left us. I mean, no just, question. just no question. amazing drummer. Uh, I'm still amazed. You know, I, I still watch his, some of his videos and his soloing and his finesse and his flash. It's just astounding. Just astounding. Yeah. And I think those things can't be taught. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's just a style that you develop on your own by doing, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you went to a drum set teacher and said, Hey, I want to play exactly like this guy. I think any good educator would say, uh, good luck. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's mm-hmm. some people are just born with it and some people you know, aren't and, and you can never get to that point, but you know, to your point, just an amazing drummer. Um, now at this point in your life, you had been living in New York for, for quite some time. Right. And I'm really curious because you ended up with quite possibly, um, the greatest symphony gig on earth. I'm going <laughs> to guess in Honolulu. Well, Yes and no. I mean, of course, Honolulu is gorgeous and the climate is gorgeous. Honolulu at that point was a very good young orchestra. Uh, it wasn't a major orchestra, but it had a lot of talent in it. And um, the, the salary was extremely low, <laughs> I got to say. <laughs> uh, and the cost of living was extremely high. Yeah. And uh, I went there. I had just gotten married and I went uh, over there. And we struggled to make a living there. My wife was pregnant, so she wasn't working. Um, and uh, I had a great time. I mean, I was playing timpani and drum set with the orchestra. Whenever I needed a drum set, I would do that. Um, and um, conductor was was fine. My colleagues were fine. But um, I couldn't really make a living there. So at that point, there were some uh, auditions coming up. Uh, one in Houston and one in Minnesota. And I just decided I'll go back to the East Coast, see if I can get some work, get ready for some of these auditions that are coming up. I just felt like uh, it, it didn't really work living there. And actually, I happened to be very fortunate. I left at a good time because they went on for a six-month strike right after I left. So uh, <laughs> so I wouldn't have had any income at all. So I, I, you know, I went back to New York and I, and I, I, I got a, a rehearsal space and, and started practicing timpani for the Minnesota audition. And, uh, and sure enough, I got the job by the middle of the summer, I got the job. And, uh, uh, it's, it was a, an orchestra of great promise with some wonderful players and it's gotten even better over the years. Now I think it's a real totally class A plus orchestra. Um, and I uh, was very happy to get there and get a, a reasonable salary and, you know, have all the medical insurance and all the things that, that a, a, a union gig will give you in a major orchestra. So sure. it was, it was a sort of a move both for music, but also for, uh, for my family, my budding family, you might say. So. Absolutely. Well, and, and you've stayed in Minnesota since, since that time. Yes, I have. 
Um, I had a, a really nice career with the orchestra, and uh, three years ago I retired, um, and I decided um, to, well, I was already, I should really explain this, since you want a little bit of chronology here. Um, while I was in my first bunch of years in Minnesota, um, I was refining my playing as a timpanist. There's like a, an amazing lear learning curve when you're a, a timpanist in an orchestra. You can prepare and prepare all you want, but the first few years, as the, the repertoire is flying at you, um, you ha there's a real steep learning curve. And once that was done, uh, I started cruising along. We were making recordings. You know, we were going on tour. It was, it was a, a good life. Um, I started missing playing drums again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, we have a wonderful uh, trumpet player in the Minnesota Orchestra, Chuck Lazarus, who's developed something of a reputation. He'd come from the Canadian brass, and he played some jazz and some funk. And, and he, um, he was asked to do uh, small benefit concerts for the donors of the orchestra. And uh, there was one occasion around 2008 when... The regular guys who play in the percussion section of the Minnesota Orchestra could not uh, make this uh, engagement. You know, it's almost like a, a donor-type engagement where you donate your services. And um, he asked me to do it. He knew I'd had some experience in New York and knew a little bit about that. And I had such a good time. I just started playing again <laughs> after yeah. this one engagement, and I started revisiting my own, my old music that I had written, and I started inviting people over to play, and set up a studio in my basement, set up the drum kit again, started practicing a little bit, and uh, this led to my first album, which I think was 2013, uh, was released, and it had all originals and used all my friends on it, and some lo really terrific local players. And, um, and then our, my orchestra was locked out. There was a 16-month lockout of the Minnesota Orchestra, which uh, was not a strike. We were happy to negotiate, but management was thinking otherwise. So we had, I had a lot of time on my hands, and I started writing some more, and I started the process of, uh, of putting out a, a second album. And... Uh, so uh, shortly after we started working again, I, that album came out, and um, and then I started working on the third album. <laughs> uh, at that point, uh, I was ready to retire, so um, I decided I would just do more full-time drum set playing, and started gigging around town and uh, meeting more players, gathering ideas for my third disc, which. Uh, just came out, as you saw. Um, it was sort of released the end of last year, the beginning of this year. Yeah, well, and, and, you know, I mean, that's a perfect segue because I have spent uh, about a week or so with the record. And, wow. you know, a, a couple of things that I'm going to say right off the bat here okay. is it is a perfect mix of your compositions and then you know, s some other artists like, there, you know, there's some great Charlie Parker stuff on there. It's just sonically so pleasing. And and before we get into the nuts and bolts of the record, what kind of snare drum were you using? Because it okay. sounds so incredible. That's uh, the first thing that jumped out at me. I was wow, like, man, wow. that snare is great. 
I'm glad to hear hear that. Um, well, I used two. There's a, on a few of the uh, tracks. I use this. Um, it's like a three and a half or four by fourteen metal snare drum that I picked up used. That it was inside. It says Wilson Drum Company, Chicago. Okay. Go, go figure. Yeah. It's it's a it's a thin metal snare drum, but it has a wooden shell on the inside. So it's metal over wood. Okay. Only has six lugs. Um, I use this on some of the tracks, and it's the brighter sounding snare drum. Okay. Uh, it's probably not. It's probably on the third third track on on the quintet tracks. Is more. It's more likely to be heard there. Okay. Uh, on the septet tracks, I was using my uh, Slingerland. I think it's the Gene Krupa model. It's a. It was a metal. Metal shell snare drum that came with my 1972 Slingerland drum kit. That's that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm that's almost certain. The one. Yeah, and it, it, yeah, it does. It does. It is a great drum. Uh, you know, it's hasn't got all the modern bells and whistles. Uh, I did do. I did modify it a little bit in that I put uh, a uh, um, they call it a uh, a hoop on it. That's one of those uh, um, uh, pearl hoops. Uh, Oh, like a super hoop or a die cast hoop die or something. Cast, yeah, that's okay. the word I'm looking for. Okay. It's a die cast hoop, and I ended up putting a die cast hoop on the top head of my tom, my toms as well. Okay. So that gave the the snare drum a. It definitely gave it a lift. It gave it a kick upward in terms of its punch. I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just sounds fantastic, and and. So you said you set up a studio in your basement. So this is a, a essentially a home recording. No, this oh, okay. is not a home recording. Okay, I was we getting have ready a nice, to say uh, a nice studio, uh, a couple of nice places to record in in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, so most of it was done at a place called Wild Sound, uh, which is a nice, uh, which has an enclosed drum room and an enclosed room for the horns and the piano and the bass are in the middle larger room and then there's another room for the guitar all with some visual contact um most of the album except for one tune were done in that studio um i have a wonderful engineer uh who who's a grammy winner doing work with vocal groups but he has a great ear and i think that's one of the reasons why you're enjoying the sonority so much um the last track was done at a studio um, in in Minneapolis that has a larger room, and uh, that's the, the track El Rancho. So if you listen carefully, you can probably hear the difference in terms of it sounding a little more expansive. And, uh, and that was great because I was in the same room with the piano and the and the and the guitar and the bass, and we had a little better eye contact and so on. So that being a fairly complicated tune. Sure. Well, I, I, you know, again. Sonically, the record just plays so well. It's I, I mean, I have really enjoyed listening to it. And, um, you know, I'm going to let everybody in on the on the big secret here. It is yeah. Peter Kogan featuring mm-hmm. the Monsterful Wonder Band, which is the greatest <laughs> jazz band name ever. I'm going on record right now, Peter, and saying, um, but it, it is called the Green Album. And That's right. Um, I, there is a track on there, um, I, that I, I'll let you explain it, but it okay. really does sound like you're, you know, it, it, when you listen to the song, you feel like you're on the beach in Hawaii. 
Yeah, it it is it is a very the tune was actually written in Hawaii when I was there years ago. Oh you know, wow! I was okay. working with the orchestra there, so it actually does come from there. Uh, it was just something I started fooling with at the piano, and uh, and I had held it onto it all these years. And a couple of years ago, I I wrote it out, you know, and uh, it turned into that tune. For a while, I didn't know what to call it, um, and I knew that I wanted the album cover to be green <laughs> partly because the first album was blue and the second album was primarily red. So, uh, there you so go. It, was, it was that silly. It was that silly. But this, this became the theme song of the album because Honolulu is definitely very green. So yes. it worked out that way. Well, the, the whole record is fantastic. And, you know, I mean, I, I referenced, you know, Charlie Parker. I, I mm-hmm. think it's Moose the Mooch that's that's mm-hmm. on the disc. It's fantastic. And thank you. I, all of it, you know, miles back. Fantastic uh-huh. track. The, the whole the whole record is just it, it, I mean, it's wonderful. But tell our listeners a little bit about some of the players that you've got on the record with you and, and you know, how you put the group together. Okay. Well, um, I guess the key, some of the key guys are, 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 are Pete Whitman, who was a, my sax player, who had been been with me for a while, uh, doing first as a quartet, then as a quintet. Uh, he was on my second album, and uh, and so we've been together about three or four years, and uh, wonderful, you know, tenor and soprano player. So uh, he's featured on a lot of the stuff. Um, same, and then I had, uh, as you notice, is a big list of players in the front because I started developing a relationship with a whole bunch of different players. And if when somebody wasn't available, I would pick somebody else, you know, who I who, who I knew could really play well. Because I had started to having on my gigs, I would occasionally have subs, so I started to get to know the community, the jazz community here. Um, Corey Wong is one of the special players on this record. Um, he was a guitarist on a couple of tracks, a very, you know, developing a very successful jazz career. Um, my, a star young trumpet player named Jake Baldwin, who's on all of the tracks, I believe. Wonderful talent. You know, guy who's barely 30, I think. Um, and then uh, two wonderful trombonists, uh, Scott Axter and uh, Dave Graff, both of both wonderful players, busy around town. Um, let's see, uh, the pianists. Uh, well, uh, one of them, Phil Aaron, who's on a lot of the quintet tracks primarily, uh, is a guy who has had a very uh, successful career here in town. You know, writing uh, writing for movie scores and so on, documentary scores, and also backing up singers. And he's just a wonderful uh, traditional style jazz player. Um, let's see, Sean Turner, uh, another player, a little less of a, uh, a swing player and more of a contemporary groove player, is on a number of the tracks on keyboard, um, and um, a very young. Uh, Indian-born, Indian subcontinent, continent, I mean, you know, uh, named Kavi Kaviyash Kaviraj is um, playing on the last track, and he kind of came in and with this very difficult chart, and he he just nailed it. I thought he did a beautiful job. Uh, I had a whole bunch of wonderful bass players on this record. Yes, um, you did. Um, 
So uh, let's see, Jeff Bailey is on a, a whole bunch of tracks, a local guy who's played with everybody here in town, uh, just a wonderfully solid player with a great tone. Um, Gary Rayner is on there playing one track. He he was the bass player for years on the Prairie Home Companion shoe band. It's, uh, you know, it was on every week on uh, public radio. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's see, um, I think... Who am I forgetting? Um, like that. Just just wonderful players from around town were able to help me. Uh, Chris Olson, a wonderful guitarist, also on there. And uh, there's a great drummer, kunga player in town um, who is on the first track playing kungas and an instrument called a hindawu, <laughs> which, okay. is, which is kind of a whistle. And really what it was was like a little empty liquor bottle, like from a hotel. And uh, this guy, um, he came in and played kungas and uh, did a beautiful job on the first track and added this whistling at the end, which is almost like shouting into a little bottle kind of thing. But it's apparently a pygmy instrument. So he, he knew about this and he just did it on his own. He said, let me try this on this track. And he added that in. So we, we, we love that. Um, so that's about that's about it. Uh, Chris Bates plays on the last track. He's been playing with me a lot ever since. Is one of the local jazz stars, um, and uh, I've just been very fortunate. Well, I mean, it's just an incredible ensemble of musicians, and you know the the thing that came across to me, and you know, full disclosure, I you know I'm not you know I love listening to jazz, but I'm not very adept at playing jazz. But the thing that I always look for in jazz records is the energy, you know, mm -hmm. and it sounded like you guys were having a blast making <laughs> this record. Well, it certainly was a blast for me. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's so exciting to, you know, finally get the stuff down if you worked on and, and maybe played it live a few times and you hope that it's just, you have to, you don't know what's going to happen in the studio, you know, with, with jazz. It's not going to be the same every time. And, uh, I was very fortunate. Like the guys played great solos. They were totally committed. So I really, really lucked out. Well, I mean, it's just a, a wonderful album and, and, you know, I'm going to recommend all of our listeners, uh, you know, check it out and, and we'll have a link up and all that good stuff uh, to <laughs> okay. our website. But it, it, I mean, it's just, it really is a good record and everybody deserves to give it a listen for sure. Now, uh, a couple of things that I want to touch on with you mm -hmm. that, that, that we've mentioned kind of back a few minutes in the interview you talked about, you know, having a union gig, uh, especially mm -hmm. in Minnesota. Now, right. this, this is a question that comes up amongst, um, you know, listeners and colleagues of mine. Hey, do, should I join the union, the musicians mm -hmm. union? And, you know, unfortunately, you know, where I'm geographically located, our musicians union is, you know, it pretty much only covers the guys that are in our Philharmonic. You know, right. I mean, that's uh -huh. that, that that's that's mm -hmm. what its purpose is to make sure they get paid. So if you're a gigging drummer like me, joining mm -hmm. the union probably isn't going to help you too much. But mm -hmm. explain to other drummers out there what the union does do for you. And, and mm -hmm. you know, maybe touch on that a little bit. I think that would be very educational for us. OK, I'll, I'm not a total expert on this, but uh, it, it definitely 
you know, uh, made my life so much easier. Um, yes, the, the symphonies and the theater gigs where they have, they have negotiated with the union, that's where you can make pretty decent money. Um, and everywhere else, you really, it's really market forces and most club, most, there's so many musicians dying to play that, you know, for almost nothing that, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hard to make a living playing jazz or anything else, as you know, unless you're, you start, you know, going on tour with some, you have some success as a as a pop or rock band. Uh, the jazz world is is not a very uh, uh, financially rewarding field for people on the bottom and the middle. You know, um, the the orchestras negotiate their contracts. They have the union protect them, and they also have a pension, which is I think the key advantage of being in the union, other than you know getting paid slightly more on the gigs is, you know, it's, it adds to your retirement. And uh, a, a lot of young players don't want to think about that. You know, we, all, we don't think about that when we're younger at all. But um, it's, it's amazing what it does for you when you reach the age where you want to take it easy or do something else. Uh, it's great. So um, if you get offered recording, you know, major stuff, where you start getting, you know, uh, vested into the union pension, I'd say go for it, and uh, and and uh, you know it, it'll it'll really help you later on. And obviously, once you get involved with union work, if you're successful, you'll get more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. and and you know, the, I think the other thing that's that's handy for people that aren't in the 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 symphonic or the orchestra world mm-hmm. that the union will do for you is if. You know, if you have any compositions that are used by television or movies or, you know, that the, they will hunt down your royalties that are owed to you and make sure you get them. So that's kind of a key thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's the, the, the organizations ASCAP and BMI and a few others that will do that for you, too. Um it's, you know, it's a very difficult field. I mean, you know, in terms of whereas people used to sign record contracts and put out, uh, you know, albums of discs or, or you know, vinyl, um, it's, it's changed so much with the streaming services that uh, even like for my earlier albums when I start, got some residuals, it, you, know, you know, someone would download and I'd get a penny. You know? Oh yeah, <laughs> so you've yeah. probably heard this before. So uh, people try and find other ways to actually make a living at music, but everyone wants wants to put something out there, and I certainly do. And I I, I really appreciate that you enjoy my album because that's sort of what what it's all about for me now. You know, is, is getting my music out there and having people listen to it and hopefully appreciate it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, even in my own, you know, musical context, I understand that I'm not going to get rich playing mm-hmm. in a band and releasing an album, you know, and, and right. I think mm-hmm. right now, even with the Music Modernization Act that passed and was signed into law late last year, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody listens to your song on Spotify, it's going to get you, you know, one tenth of a penny. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it, it is a right. it's a fraction uh, of uh, a shilling, basically. And, right, right. you know, but but the goal is to get your music out there into the world and have people hear it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so the money part of it, you know, if you're making good art, the money will follow you hope. And if it doesn't, you've still made good art at the end of the day, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. 
You know, I, I think that's the key to all of it. I do. I, I think I have to right now. But I mean, I also, uh, I, you know, I made my living at a, in a wonderful profession, but, you know, my heart now is in a different place. And, um, and so because I, I worked all those years and have the pension and, you know, the things that you get when you, you've been working for a long time. Um, now I can enjoy doing exactly what I want and not be too worried about income. So this is a, a great time for me. Absolutely. Well, and, and you said it a couple of different times in, in our chat. You know, I started wanting to play drum set again. It sounds like <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, Peter Kogan is a drum set guy and yeah, you just yeah. happen to veer away from it a, a few times, you know, to, to feed your family because it, right, that's right. it is hard to be a drum set player and make a living at it. You have Absolutely. to be have to be very, very lucky. Now, um, are you still, you mentioned that you're still teaching, but I think, are are you still um, a professor at the University of Minnesota as well? Uh, I was never a professor. I'm what they call the affiliate faculty. Okay, okay. uh, But I I, I do have three students this semester, which is delightful. And I've had a number of students over the last 10 years, some of whom have gone on to some good things, which is great, you know. Um, And uh, I still coach at the call the Minnesota a youth symphony, which uh, where I coach, you know, um, junior high school and high school kids uh, on playing in an orchestra. And uh, so that's still have my hand in and I'm still uh, I got a call to play with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra this uh, this May, which is delightful. I'll I'll be doing some Haydn and Mozart and uh, um, that's right up my alley now. Uh, Just a nothing too too loud on the kettle drums <laughs> right <laughs> right so uh i've I, you know I, i've enjoyed that and i and i enjoyed you know doing some of it some of it i i do some early music gigs on timpani too i build these little um baroque era timpani that are copies of instruments from about 1700 and they're these little tiny kettle drums and i play on those with a early instrument orchestra that's a whole other field of music really and I'm, I got a kick out of that. And uh, so generally, I'm now I'm looking forward to my next gig, which is in a couple of weeks. I, I have some some gigs coming up with uh, probably with the quintet. I can really decide on my own what who's going to be who's going to be playing. It depends who's available. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like. You know, most most other musicians, you know, you book a gig and, you know, when you're the leader, you know, you, who's available? And <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Fortunately, there's so much talent in this town. So it's it's great. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one other thing that I'm curious about, and you can probably help me out and elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit. But one of the themes of of my show here is I want to show drummers that they don't always have to be a sideman. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's kind of how, you know, historically and traditionally drummers have made a living is they've attached themselves to a to a singer or a band or or whatever the case may be. What have Mm -hmm. you learned from saying, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to be a band leader. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, uh, One thing I learned is I had to be my own librarian. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and my own stagehand. I had to carry all the instruments. Of course, most drummers know that anyway, but I was in a very sweet spot with the kettle drums and the major orchestra where other people would carry the instruments. Um, but I, I learned that I had to um, make a set list, 
you know, try and think about what the audience might want to hear in what order. Uh, to pick the tunes. Now, for me, initially I was doing a lot of my own tunes, but then I started doing cover tunes like that are on the record, like, you know, a, a Dizzy Gillespie tune or a Herbie Hancock or a Wayne Shorter tune. And I basically found the music that I just wanted to play. And, and then I would, and then I would try and put it into an order where uh, an audience would enjoy the contrast and enjoy it. And it took a little bit of learning, a learning curve there. But uh, that's certainly part of it. Uh, and then, of course, uh, if you're assuming you don't have your own band uh, specifically, like if it's not a not a core group that's always the same, um, being willing to uh, call guys up and and uh, have them come over and rehearse and uh, and try and be a good leader, try and be a a, uh, a generous um, leader, so that you don't get on people's nerves, you don't bug them, but you get the best playing out of, out of them. And I, I've seen, you know, people bullied, bullied in the music industry. So, uh, I've tried to take great pains to, to be the kind of guy people want to be around. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and it shows on the album as well, because most of the time when you hear, okay, this is a drummer led jazz record, mm-hmm. you're going to get a six minute drum solo in every, in every <laughs> tune, right? <laughs> not me, not me. Now, as you notice, I was pretty discreet about that. I'm not sure, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know, know if I can compete with the, the, the great jazz drummer soloists, you know, I'm not Buddy Rich. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to show off like that. I try and do musical things that fit with the, the music, and I try and keep them brief, you know, so uh, I, can, I can show a little bit what I do uh, and, and, be, and keep it in context of the music. So hopefully that worked out. Um, I think the other thing is I noticed rehearsing a band and being the leader as a drummer is I had to mute down my drums like crazy. I couldn't hear the band, you know? Yeah. I mean, I had to, you have to be able to hear what the guys are doing when you're rehearsing a band. And that meant, you know, putting cloth on the cymbals and muffling down the toms. And, and, uh, and sometimes I just, you know, play, just say, just guys keep, keep playing. And I just play just ever so lightly just so I could hear, hear the band. You know, yeah, well, I, I refer to that as tuning your most important instruments, and that's the two <laughs> flaps of skin on the sides of your head, you know. Yeah, <laughs> good way to put it. Way yeah, put it. well, it, I, again, the record is just so good, and, I, and, you know, I'm encouraging everybody to check it out. Um, Peter, one of the traditions that we have here on the Drum Shuffle is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice, and I think you may have a unique perspective on this, given that you've worked as a professional musician literally your entire life. Um, And and it's been with symphony orchestras. It's been, you know, in blues bands. It's been in jazz quartets, quintets, you know. Mm -hmm. What advice would you share to other musicians? I think slow, careful, very conscious practice is is really key um getting to the point where you can really be relaxed and really uh feel what you're doing hear what you're doing um rushing through things you know i think that's really crucial um listening to as much music as you can 
and then spending a certain amount of time just feeling out what you want to play. I mean, the impro- improvising on your own is, is also really important, just sort of letting go sometimes and, and seeing what happens. Amazed amaze what you can find out about yourself. So um, I would say the other thing is I, I think of myself as a, as a perennial student. Um, and um, most of the jazz musicians I talk to sort of are the same way. We're all learning all the time and studying all the time. And that's the, that's the great joy of it. Yeah. 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 You know, and I've said this before, I I think as soon as you think you've got it all figured out, that's exactly when the universe uh, (laughs) will will bring you down a notch or two. Uh So, uh, you know, it's obvious that you are a student of our instrument and, you know, I, I just, I can't thank you enough for your time to come on the show and talk about your career. It's just been amazing. Um, we will make sure that we have links up, uh, you know, to your website and to the album. And it goes without saying, Peter, you're welcome here anytime. Keep us posted on what's going on. Thank you, Jamie. I will. And I really appreciate the appreciation you've given me today. It's been just a great feeling to know you enjoyed the album. Thank you. Oh, it's it's a fantastic listen. And uh, everybody check it out. It is Peter Kogan featuring the monsterful Wonder Band, the Green Album. Again, best jazz, uh, best jazz band name I've heard ever. So kudos to you, Peter. Thank you so much. And uh, we will talk to you very, very soon. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode 63 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We we really do appreciate it. And we cannot do this without every single one of you doing so throughout the week. As I do each and every week, uh, it was something that you can do that helps us out tremendously is hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. Uh, we have guests coming up that you are certainly not going to want to miss. Uh, also, if you like the show and you know folks that might like the show as well, it helps us tremendously. Send them a, a link, you know, text uh, the drumshuffle.com to somebody and say, hey, check out this podcast. We are continuing to grow and it's because of you guys recommending us to your friends and we really do appreciate that. As always, we love hearing from uh, all of you throughout the week. Uh, we do answer every email that we receive here at the Drum Shuffle. Our email address is the Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the drumshuffle.com, and you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, go ahead and click on those social media links. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We do try to have social media output throughout the week, so you can follow us on all of those platforms as well. Please tune in next week as I will be joined by Josh Allen from Indie Drums, Independent Drum Labs. They've got some really cool stuff going on over there. Uh, Fantastic brand uh, that's been around for a few years, but we caught up with Josh. He's an old acquaintance of mine, and I wanted him to come on and, and spotlight what he's doing at Indie Drums. So he'll be joining us next week. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. 